I want to ask you, if you would, to open up in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses uh, in your worship guide. It says 21. We're going to go verses 20 through 26. This has been referred to by commentators as the most important paragraph in all of the Bible. That's a pretty big claim. It's a big deal. It's certainly one that stands out and I believe can and will be used by God today to do a transformational and I believe purifying work in the life of our church. I believe that what will come out of my mouth this morning and what I will read off of these sacred pages are as important as anything that you will ever hear and is as important as anything I could ever say in my entire lifetime. I remember at the age of 19, I was asked to be a chaperone at a particular youth camp. I'd been a, at least I thought, a believer for, you know, six months, eight months, somewhere within that last year. I had started living my life around Christians. I had been connected, at least in some way, in a local church. And I was asked pretty early on, uh, partly because of personality, they said, hey, will you come and be a chaperone? And, and so I went. I, I was excited to be asked to do such a thing. And also, uh, Catherine and I are high school sweethearts, and she was still in high school. I had just graduated, and uh, she was part of the trip. And so if for no other reason, I was like, well, I can go. It seems like it'd be a good thing, and Catherine's going to already be there, and so I can be there with her. Well, I don't remember anything that was spoken about that weekend. I, I don't remember any messages. I don't remember anything uh, small group related, uh, large group related. I don't remember. What I do remember is this. I was sitting outside of our hotel room with Catherine. Catherine grew up in, in the church. I had grown up not really connected in any way up until those last, you know, few months, but I had been around Christians. I had been around the church. My parents were Christians. And we're sitting out in the hallway, two people that at least had been around church all of our life. And Catherine asked me this question. She said, what is different about the death of Jesus than the death of Peter or Paul? Now, you, you would think, well, that, that's an easy question to answer. The thing is, I really couldn't answer it. At the age of 19. And I said, well, Jesus is God. That's what made it different. She said, but why? Now, it is very true that Jesus is God and he died on the cross. But I want to be clear about something. For some of us in the room, I think it's possible that we have grown up. It was for me. I grew up around Christians. I grew up around Christianity. And I knew that at Christmas, we celebrated that God was born. And I was aware of that Easter, we saw that God died and that three days later, God rose from the grave. But I was unable to articulate 
why or how that could be good news for me. How that could possibly take a sinner and bring him to a place where he was found righteous, where he was justified. It was similar to this. I'll try to give you a word picture. It was like being in the banquet hall of Christianity. Able to recognize the the furniture that might be there in the banquet hall, recognizing the furniture and the decor of Christianity, but without a table to feast on. That's what it was like. And I believe what this text does today, and I believe why it is so important, and I believe why someone might argue that it's the greatest, it's the most important of the biblical text is this, is found here in this passage is the table. The table that we might feast on. And I pray not just feast on in the moment, but feast on for our entire lifetimes. And I believe for all of eternity. That's how big of a deal this text is. So if you will, let's pray and then let's jump right in. Father, we we thank you for this word. Lord, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beautiful gospel of grace found in only the name, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you will, look with me there in your outline or in your worship guide, and we want to ask three questions, and they're all going to be related to the subject of the righteousness of God. And I'm going to introduce you a a word that you know, you've been around it before, but we're going to talk to you about it like you don't know what it is today. And it's this word justification. If you look at the original language here, the word for righteousness and the word for justification, we see it as justified uh, here. They're really talking about the same thing. When we, when we see the word justification or justified here in the text, it's saying to us this, is that we are declared righteous. You're declared righteous. You're right with God and right standing with God. This text today will answer the question, how can one be right with God who is in themselves unrighteous? How could a just God justify unrighteous people? That's the kind of questions we're asking today. We want to ask about the righteousness of God. What does it mean? How does it come? And how do we receive it? What does it mean? How does it come? And how do we receive it? To help you understand what it means, I'm going to give you another picture. And the the picture is going to actually help point us to what it's not. Okay? I want you to imagine a measuring stick. Uh, we'll, we'll just say it's a really short measuring stick. It's about my height. Okay, got it. Got one. Okay, you want to throw that out there? Comment relief. Okay, so about five foot eight measuring stick. And this measuring stick from bottom to the top of it is a picture of the righteousness of God, namely the righteousness found in Christ Jesus. This is the righteousness that we need. Okay? 
100% of the measuring stick would be the righteousness that we need. Let's imagine for a second that we start putting ourselves onto this measuring stick. And so we're going to use me. I'll be the, the biggest sinner in our picture. Okay, let's say that at the end of my life, we look back and I, on the measuring stick, it was, I was 25% righteous. 25% righteous. Okay, let's use uh, Billy Barton. Billy Barton's the next person here. Let's say Billy Barton, he's on up there, 75% righteous. All right, 75% righteous. And then we've got a third person, Cindy. Okay, we're going to use Cindy, who the other day, she told me about the time that she lied. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. Good joke. Okay. She told me about the time that she lied. I, I'm not convinced that Cindy sinned more than the times of fingers that she has. You know, like, I don't know if she's gotten past the 10 yet. Mark, uh, it, it doesn't seem like sometimes. But here, here's the thing. Let's say Cindy, 98% righteous. Woo! Man, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's good. Now, <clears throat> if, if that was the true picture that the Bible is giving us, uh, and even if we gave an answer like this, but even Cindy didn't get to the 100% mark. She needs a gospel. Okay. If that was our picture, I believe it distorts what the Bible is actually teaching. For that would mean that I only needed what? 75% righteousness. That Billy needed 25% righteousness. And for all you math stars out there, Cindy needed 2%, okay? And that's not at all what Paul has been proclaiming to us, is it? He says that we need 100% righteousness. Not 2%, not 75%, not 25%. We need all of it. And it's found here in the text, the way that we might receive this righteousness. James 2.10 tells us that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. Well, that hurts. But it really makes the point that should be freeing for us is we need to understand we cannot do anything to account for the righteousness that we need. We saw that, I believe, very clearly last week. It was clear to me. I I was the one preaching, but it was clear to me. Okay, like I saw it in the text. Today we want to ask, what does this righteousness look like? What, What does it mean to have the righteousness of God? How does it come and how can I receive it? So if you're looking at your outline there, let's start trying to understand this as we walk down the the text. I want you to see there under that first blank that outside of the gospel, we come to this belief system, we believe, that we must develop a righteousness, offer it to God, and hope we are accepted. This is the idea that we have, and it makes sense to the human brain, because that's what we do for like a job. You want to get a job, and you 
work up your resume. You give the best resume that you can. The resume says, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I offer it to the employer and I say, please, will you accept me? That's what we do for education programs. This is what I've accomplished up until this point. I offer it to you. Will you accept me? And so the, the natural mind, and I would argue every other religious system, gives us this picture of how we relate to God in our moral standing. And we say, here's our resume. Here's our righteousness. Here's what we've done. This is what we're like. We offer it to God and we just hope he'll accept us. That's what the natural man, that's how the natural man thinks. I want to read for you what Paul proclaims to us so clearly here in this text. Starting in verse 20, read along with me, or not read along, follow along as I read. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one will be declared righteous. No one. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But verse 21, see it clearly. But now, there's a transition, there's a change. He says, but now, the righteousness of God, it has been manifested apart from the law. This is something different. This is a different kind of righteousness. This isn't one that I work up. This is one that comes from outside of me, namely the righteousness of Jesus. We're told that this is the righteousness that we're talking about, one that comes from God, not that works from outside of us. I mean, from inside of us, it comes from outside. says this is manifested apart from the law, but listen to this next part. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So if you came in the room today and for whatever reason, you have this feeling about the Bible that you say, okay, the Old Testament taught us one way, the New Testament tells us another. You're, you're really missing it. The entire Bible from Genesis to the maps are all pointing to the same thing. The righteousness of God found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was bearing witness to this, pointing to this, and now Paul is able to sit here and proclaim it. This isn't a new characteristic that God has. And now God's loving in a new way. No, God, God loves. God is perfectly love and God is perfectly just. The question is, how can that be? Let's keep walking through. So outside of the gospel, we believe we must develop a righteousness, something like a resume, offer it to God and hope we are accepted. This is our attempt to be right with God. But the gospel offers us something different. The gospel says, look at that next bullet point, that God has developed a perfect righteousness. He offers it to us, and by it, we are accepted. I'm going to give you a truth. We'll keep unpacking, and then we'll actually bring it back up again at the end. Here's the truth. 
that if you have faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ this morning in this room, listen to me, you will not be more right with God in 10,000 years than you are in this very moment because of your faith in Jesus. The good works that you do because of the beautiful faith that you've been shown will not make you more right with God. The sin that you commit in your life when you leave here will not make you less right with God. Because of this gospel, when we understand justification correctly, we will see this means for the Christian that I will never be more right with God than I am in this very moment because of the faith that I have in Christ Jesus in his atoning work of grace. If you get that, that will completely transform your life. And we'll keep unpacking, then we'll bring that up again because that's too good to only say once. See, we're justified, we're counted righteous, we're declared righteous according to God's word here. Let's read it and, and hear it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, it's gonna be described here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's that word again, are declared righteous. How? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This justification that we're talking about, this is better than pardon. It's better than just forgiveness. I heard one guy say it this way. Forgiveness says, now you can go. Justification, understood rightly here, says, now you may come. Now you may come. Everything that goes with the life of Jesus, all of his accomplishments, all of his work, is given to me. As I believe through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I receive the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, what we were saying is, I'm justified. So what is it? Well, justification is that we are declared righteous. So how does it come? How does it come? The questions that we want to ask here are deep. This is, how is this justification given How is it made possible? I want you to see two main points there. It's accomplished uh, through redemption, paid for through atoning sacrifice, propitiation. But before we get there, I want you to see it's sheer grace. It's a gift. How does justification come? It's given. It's given. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. How? It says right here, by his grace as a gift. 
that means that there's nothing that I can do to earn this righteousness. It has to be given to me. Now, when we look at this and we understand this rightly, I, I believe it can cause us to start having some other questions that will come up. And some of those questions will be answered in this book, the book of Romans. One of the questions is, if I'm just looking over the landscape of Christianity and I say, well, if that's true, if it's nothing of my own work, if it's just a free gift of grace, if justification is just given because of the work of another, if I can't do anything to earn it, if my, my sin won't cause me to be less right with God, why don't I just do whatever I want to do? And I would say you're probably understanding grace better than you ever have in your life. You're just not responding to it appropriately. You are probably just about nailing it because that's exactly what chapter six is about. Well, if all this is true, do we not just sin? Can we not just do whatever we want to? And Paul says, by no means, by no means. So we'll get to that later. Just don't walk out of here saying that Colby said you could do whatever you want to do. I, I didn't say that. What I'm saying is this, you will, no one in this room, you will do nothing to earn your salvation in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of sheer, scandalous, crazy grace that he gives to us. Secondly, I want you to see under this. We see, we see that it's given freely through sheer grace and we see under that bullet point there, redemption, that righteousness is accomplished by redemption. Redemption is a really good word. And there's a lot of things we can say about it. I'm gonna give you a very, a very short connecting point here. It's found in the Old Testament. We, we've got a, uh, if you're in the young professional Sunday school class, just let the hand go up one time, all right? Raise it high, raise it high, raise it proud, good, okay. This class has been going through the book of Leviticus, okay? I thought I would give you a Leviticus reference today, just in honor of how awesome you guys are, okay? So uh, the reference point that I will be making here is actually Leviticus 25.25, if you, if you want to write that down. But here's what I want to do. It's help you understand, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the culture that the Israelites were in, this was an economy, this was a, uh, this, this was a culture that it was very easy to go into debt. And it was very difficult once you went into debt to get out of it. And so what would happen would be this, you couldn't just, you couldn't file for bankruptcy, you, could, you couldn't do that. If you went into debt, then you had to offer yourself, you had to give yourself over to the person that you owed money to or you owed uh, whatever to. And so it, you had a debt and you had to give yourself to them. This could take a long, you know, a large part of your life. It could take your entire life and you might, in essence, be their slave. That's how it would work. That's what you would give your life to them that you owed a debt. Well, God's law in Leviticus 25, 25 makes provision for this very thing. God's gracious. He's kind. He doesn't want us to be enslaved. He wants us to be free. And he gives a law, and you'll remember this law connected to Ruth with the kinsman redeemer, as we see with Boaz. This is, this is the same law, but this is applied in a little bit different way. This would be if someone lost 
their property or they had to be enslaved to another. And there was a kinsman redeemer, a nearest of kin, that had the ability that they could come in and they could purchase you uh, out of debt. They could purchase you out of slavery from who you were in debt to. It's found in Leviticus 25, 25. Uh, The main point here is that the word carries the idea of, of delivering out of something into freedom. Typically comes by means of paying a price. This text here in the book of Romans chapter 3 is going to tell us that we're justified. We're declared righteous by his grace as a gift, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus purchasing us, him buying us. Well, out of what? What did he redeem us? Out of, we'll, we'll go with the what first, slavery to sin, slavery to guilt, slavery to shame. It's possible that you're in the room today and you are completely enslaved to guilt. You're enslaved to shame. It has you locked up. And legalism will not help you here. Anything other than the gospel will not help you here. Looking to what you have done is only going to help you understand more of why you feel guilt and shame. What you need is not to look at what you've done, but we need to understand what God has done for us. We ever want to see the slavery removed, the slavery of sin. We can't just ask the question. Of what are we redeemed? Uh, what are we redeemed from? It needs to be the bigger question: Whom are we rescued from? Now, this is the question that bothered me. When I finally understood this, it bothered me for a while. And the answer to this is who? God. God. You're not. You're not saved from. You're not redeemed from Satan. You're not just redeemed from yourself. You're purchased and you're removed from under what? The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, as we dig here, as we begin to understand this more, it's going to answer the question and help us see how God can be right in allowing unrighteous people to be justified. We're going to see it here in the text. So we're uh, purchased, or, or we're, we, we see, let me go back here, let's make sure we're getting it, we're, that righteousness is given freely through sheer grace, that righteousness is accomplished by redemption, and that righteousness is paid for by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And the word that we need to see here is a wonderful theological term, propitiation. Everybody say it twice. I'm just kidding, don't. Propitiation. Propitiation, a definition here can be this, the the turning away of God's wrath, the satisfier of God's wrath. We're told here in the scriptures that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The, the cost was the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that brings about something that no other blood could bring, that no other death could bring. Jesus' death is radically different from the death of Peter. Radically different from the death of Paul and any other person. Jesus' death has much more infinite significance compared to theirs. How is it that people were martyred singing to God? They went to their death singing psalms and quoting psalms and uh, praising the Lord. And yet Jesus, the night of his death, uh, that, that he sweated drops of blood in agony. Was Jesus a sissy? Like, was he, was he not able to take on what they could? Was he not able to endure what they could? Of course he was. Jesus' death is completely different from theirs. Because when Jesus died, he died in a different way. Jesus' death, when he died, he bore the sin that is ours. He didn't just die his death, he died our death. When Jesus died, he was abandoned by his father. He cried out to his father, but his father didn't answer him. Instead, his father crushed him. Why? So we who believe in Christ will not be crushed. He had the wrath of God unleashed on him. Why? So that we who believe in Christ Jesus will not have the wrath of God come upon us who were born under it, but we will no longer be under it. We are removed above it. And now we are seated with Christ. Why? Because he died, he was crushed, and he rose from the grave victorious over the sin that he purchased, the the death that he purchased, the life that he purchased, which was ours. He took our sin and he gives us his life. Propitiation reminds us that we did not just get off the hook. We didn't just get off the hook. Like in the New Testament, God's not like, I don't care about sin as much anymore. Like, that, like that's not the case. That's not true. God's wrath against sin is in full. And for us, we must understand our sin must be dealt with. It will either, the wrath will either come upon us or it came upon his son. Propitiation reminds us that we did not just get off the hook. Propitiation makes sense of how a just God can justify unjust people. How can God be both loving and just and have us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin on the cross and was punished for it. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the table. Outside of this work of grace, outside of God justifying sinners through Christ Jesus, we have nowhere to feast. So what is justification? How does it come? And lastly, how do I receive it? How do I receive it? Three answers. 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Now, this morning, you may say, well, what do I do? Like, like, how can I receive this? And if that's where you are, I want to tell you that today, what you're placing your faith in is not your faith. You're not going to place your faith in how good you believe. We're going to place our faith in the finished, in the perfect, and the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us. So today, if you say, well, how do I believe by faith? Come to God with empty hands. Say, I need the righteousness of God. I need the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's how you receive it. Come and believe. Come and take hold of a truth that is as freeing as any truth in the entire universe. And it's that not only can you be right with God today by believing by faith in Jesus Christ, by coming to him with empty hands and receiving this good news, but you can never be more right with him in 10,000 years than you are in that moment. No matter the good that you will do, and oh, by God's grace, you will do good works. In fact, Jesus Christ has prepared good works for you. There are good works prepared for you, Ephesians 2.10. But those good works will not make you more right with God. And my friends, the sin that you will commit will not make you less right with God. You cannot be more justified in 10,000 years than you are today in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask for our musicians to come as we respond. And the way that we're going to respond is this. I'm, I'm going to respond with you. I'm going to go down to this front row right here and I'm going to sing. I'm going to respond. But this is an opportunity for you to respond to God's word. And he can cause you to, to respond in so many different ways. For the one that doesn't know Jesus, oh, please let today be the day. Come know Christ Jesus. Believe in him today. Let us know you're believing. For the one that you've been around Christianity for so many years, you've been around the the banquet hall of Christianity, but there ain't no table for you to feast on in your heart. Listen to me. Today is the day. Listen, believe. Believe. Understand. We're about to come to the Lord's table. And, And today what I would love is for everyone in the room to believe in Christ Jesus. And as we take this supper that we're believing the same thing. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's death for us. I'll let the Lord work in your heart today. Stand and let's respond together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. May you use it to transform us.